Welcome back once again to your favorite podcast on the edge of innovation right here. It's Disruptive AF. It's that time of week once again with Trigger Jordan and Daniel Dan Halter bringing us not only your thoughts of innovation, but also, man, so excited to what we're talking about this week with design thinking with the man himself, John Margalik, right here with us. Dan, welcome. John, welcome. Glad to have you guys with us once again here on Disruptive AF. Trigger, you give the best introductions. Everybody needs he a hype person in their life. I was basically asleep <laughs> when we hit record on this, but every time he just wakes me right up. Okay, so last week, this is part two. Last week was so good, we literally said it. We, we, we can't leave it there. We've got to start again uh, with uh, part two of design thinking. And if you're tuning in for the first time, really recommend you guys go back and watch the first uh, episode that we had where we're talking about design thinking and with John, uh, really what you've devoted your life to in this mindset, not only with, with agile design, but also design thinking and the principles of, of how does that apply to our day-to-day life. And today we really want to dive into, you know, for, for the average listener in your life, how does this apply to you? How do you apply these principles? How do you apply this mindset of what design thinking is to our day-to-day life? Um, because when you think about it, there's a lot of processes and, and frankly systems that have been in place for a very long time that really could use this refreshing review of what this cognitive process is as we look at things. So, uh, I, Dan, I mean, is this a good place to be able to dive into of what does this look like in our lives? What does it look like? Kind of going back to what we talked about last week um, with the design thinking and, and maybe just a really refresher before we dive into what it looks like specifically with the process itself. Yeah, I think a really I think a, a good starting point here would be just a quick introduction from John again uh, on what it is we're fundamentally trying to do with design thinking at the at the basic level, whether it's applied at, at work or at home or to any type of problem. Do you want to just give us yeah. a quick introduction there, John? Absolutely. It's a good question. And it actually harkens back nicely to something we were talking about last week, which is that in the innovation space, it's really easy to end up focusing on processes or on tools rather than the purpose of the process or the tool, right? If it's just fun, if nothing useful comes out of it, uh, it's going to be rightly disregarded uh, or at least regarded in not the highest repute. And that's no fun for anybody uh, in the long term. So, I usually think about design thinking rather than being a particular set of processes, although that's what you'll get when you talk to a lot of people about it. It's more about what kind of problems it's good for. Um, And like anything else in our lives, this is a thing that I've learned through design thinking, like probably best to start by asking ourselves, why do we care about this at all? Uh, And the answer for me uh, comes in a bunch of pieces. But the first step is, Could we be better at making sure, actually, let me back up and say, taking it all in a whole, it's just a way of making sure that we don't set off on a journey without having packed all the right stuff in our bags. Yeah. And then of making sure that we don't go too far on that journey when it's no longer the right direction. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, I think everybody can agree at this point, it's, uh, it's in the national defense strategy. It's in the commandant's planning guidance. I'm sure there's equivalent guidance on the air force side. Like we live in a complex world now. It's ever changing. We are really good at knowing how to solve set problems. We're less good at knowing in, in uh, problems that are complex, that is uh, changing so quickly and with so many variables that it's almost impossible to predict outcomes. Yeah. Um, 
we see that a lot these days. And all yeah. the trickiest problems, all the problems we are most getting paid to solve, end up in that realm. And some of that is just about interpersonal stuff with people, and some of it's about peer and near peer competition. But the bottom line is, in those changing worlds, the same way you wouldn't just chart a thousand mile course for your ship or for your plane and then go without regard to how weather changed or whether or not your wing had blown off, right? Uh, and without thinking about, are we bringing all the people with us we're going to need on the way? You need a way to make sure that you frame a problem correctly and that you test the problem correctly. And design thinking writ large is just an answer to that set of questions. Not necessarily the only right answer. We have other answers to those. But I find most of the time that it's the best way to answer those questions, at least as a starting point. Does that seem fair to you, Dan? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really not about, you know, Simon Sinek talks about, I think in the reference in his new book, Infinite Game, where uh, there's infinite thinking and finite thinking and so many times. I mean, for me, uh, it, it's been because I just finished reading this book. It puts it in a totally different perspective. It is less about the results and more about the systematic process of which you evaluate things. And for, for you know, when you, when you think about the innovation uh, ecosystem that's out there, that's the thing that it's so hard for people to wrap their mind around because they're saying, well, you know, we need to focus in this direction and this is how we need to do it. But it's not about the results. It's not about the syllabus. It's not about the end widget. It's about the process. You know, Simon Sinek talks about the just cause. So many times if we lose sight of the importance of the process, we will find ourselves so far away from where we initially started from that we're like, well, we didn't even solve the problem we started with. How did we end up here? Exactly like what you said, John, is because you didn't take any course correction along your thousand mile journey. <laughs> you just, you pointed in one direction and went because we thought that that was the right direction and we never adjusted fire as necessary. We never adjusted what we needed to. And to me, being new, I say new, new in the last year, year and a half to what really, you know, agile design and just the mindset that is wrapped around it. Uh, that's been the cosmic thing to me. It's just like, oh my gosh, how have we missed it? How have we not taken more account of what value this brings? You know, General yeah, McChrystal like makes a similar point in um, Team of Teams. He gives the example of the uh, a soccer team for a fictional country, which is they're the best in the world. Gosh, they're so talented. And gosh, they train so hard. They have 712 plays that they're going to run. They've analyzed everything that's happened historically in soccer. And they're going to run one of those every single minute of every single game that they ever play. Every one of their players trains with blinders on at home without interacting with the other players. When they're on the field, they're just going to run those plays with their literally with their eyes closed or covered. And they're going to win that game. And they never win. And it's so mystifying, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I always think about this if I want a simple <laughs> metaphor, just in terms of like, if you're going to play basketball, you're going to keep your hand on the person you're supposed to be guarding, right? Yeah. When you're on defense. You don't want to keep your eye on them because you got to keep your eye on the ball. But if you can keep your eyes on the ball wherever it is and your hand just lightly touching the player, the two things you need to keep track of, you're going to know where they are at all times. And if you take yeah. your hand off that player and you expect to be able to keep blocking them, even though you can't see them, good luck to you playing that ball yeah. game. Right? So yeah, when you're going to yeah. travel, whatever you're doing, keep a hand on the players that matter. Yeah. And make sure that you're taking in the data you wanted. Do you want to say add something there, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. I really like to, uh, and this is something I've written about in uh, a, a couple of pieces, and I did in my TEDx, which is the idea that regardless of how well something is working right now, or how even how applicable a solution would be in the present moment, by the time we get to applying it, things might have changed, which is why, you know, they say that 
uh, plans are, are meaningless, but planning is essential or, you know, something to that effect. It's that the act of exploring the environment and spending time on the problem and figuring out what matters most to, you know, what it is we're trying to solve, the value that we're actually trying to create. That's what we need to keep our, our eye on really. And then we need to constantly be measuring the environment around us as far as whether, you know, it's, it's like, I like the idea of the, the, the analogy of the thousand mile journey, because you know, even an, even a aircraft on autopilot does thousands of redirects because there's a lot of things going on up in the atmosphere, right? Like it is constantly course correcting. So even the most, you know, precise calculation of we've got our target and and we're pointed at it, you're going to have to, you know, do course correction thousands of times along the way. And the only way to know what course correct correction is necessary is to have your eyes on the value you're trying to create, not the solution that you, you know, initially came to. Well, if I can equate it to something that's going on right now, very near and dear to my heart because I'm in the middle of it, is pilot training. And as we've gone through this, you know, uh, pilot re- pilot retention, and as, as they've said, the pilot crisis, we've had a look at how fundamentally, how do we train our pilots? How do we train this system inside itself? Um, and <laughs> when you look at the value of where things were placed, they, we had looked at the syllabus of what the syllabus was. But as we, it, we as we take this new mindset into it, this cognitive process, how do we learn? How do we remember things? How does our memory work? How do we store away these neural networks? And where does the information go? And how do we learn? Uh, the, how do we learn as an adult right now? One of the things that was just shocking to me as we've gone through this development process that now is being implemented uh, as, as in what's called UPT 2.5 is this mindset that... Um, y- you have to take individuals for what they are. You have to apply a different set of rules to each individual because every person learns differently. And if you look at how the syllabus was uh, as we were training, and this applies in every facet, if we try to use a cookie cutter, sometimes we're going to get it right, but the majority of time we're going to get it wrong because every situation is different. And if we don't create a system that allows us to adjust what we're doing to this changing circumstances, we're not gonna, we're going to be shocked that we only hit the mark you know 50% of the time and we're going to be wondering why didn't this work is because the value is not necessarily in the end product the value is is in being able to adjust as we go and making sure that our training systems and what we use you know I'm specifically talking about pilot training but you can apply it really anywhere is that you have built a system and a culture that is able to adjust along the way exactly talking about the 1000 mile journey you you get to your destination because you make a thousand corrections and you don't even think about it because that's what the system has been built upon is you're adjusting constantly to make sure that you keep focused on as Simon Sinek talks about the just cause. But but for us, what is the real value that we're trying to create in the result of this process? So I want to be clear as we talk about this, there are respects in which I really like the metaphor of the thousand mile journey or putting your hand on a basketball player. There are also respects in which it's inadequate to what we're trying to describe here. And one of them is that those are circumstances that are uh, knowable completely by the person, the single person who needs to gather all the information and make all the decisions, right? This is for you or listeners who are really into the trolley problem. Um, what, what I've heard referred to as trolleyology, right? You got five people on one track and one person on the other track. Your trolley's going down the track. You know, can you switch the switch? Uh, is it a good idea to do that? How many lives can you trade for the one life? What if some of them are your friends? 
What if the switch is defaulted the other way? Like the thing about that is you always have perfect information. You can always perfectly predict the consequences. You never need to let anybody else into your informa information gathering or decision making. You never need to deal with uncertainty. You never need to deal with repeat play. It's actually a pretty crappy way to teach ethics or decision making because you're just never yeah. going to run into that problem in real life. And by the same token, to your original question, like what is design thinking? I think you could break it down into five pieces that get at those additional necessities when you're operating in a complex world that involves other people or just anything that involves other people, right? We're complex beings, right? So, and, and I think if we're asking what is design thinking, we can build this basically from first principles, right? So imagine that we've all been called upon to plan a journey, right? Uh, how, how might that meeting go spectacularly poorly? Like just think back to the meetings that you hate the most in your life. Yeah. What are some of the features of those meetings? Oh, uh, do you want actual responses? I'm asking. Oh, yeah. Okay, this podcast just turned into a four-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this, episode, this, this is part episode. two of 475. Well, we'll be with you uh, into yeah. the year 2020. Some, some of the things you hate the most is you're, you're going through actions, but there's not a defined reason of why you're doing it. You're doing it because this is what we've done the last previous meetings before, and, and you're just kind of going through motions, whereas if you just looked at what you're doing in these meetings or in the journey, sometimes we go through processes that we really can't even define why we're doing them anymore. I hate, yeah, uh, my, yeah. One of the things that I hate most in meetings is the sense that uh, all of this process beforehand is really moot and it's just going to be decided by highest paid person's opinion, right? So <laughs> That's a great point. It's uh, like, why did we just spend an hour doing that when you were just going to like think through whatever your most important logical steps were and make a decision anyways? Like the other yeah. people are irrelevant. Poorly, poorly, framed, poorly framed problem to start with. Yeah. Uh, knowing that what you do in that meeting is irrelevant. Uh, I would add uh, a certain deference probably to rank and authority. Yeah. <laughs> Makes it super hard to have a conversation sometimes, especially if they speak first. It's not a problem I tend to have, but, you know, some do. Well, and you know, there's been some meetings where uh, you're sitting outside of camera view uh, recently because of COVID. You're sitting outside of camera view, so your boss can turn to you and, and look for a thumbs up or thumbs down. And then the other person on the other end, their smart people are sitting on the other end, where it's like, why didn't we just have the meeting between the people who had the answer and just cut out the middle ground? <laughs> why don't we just cut out the middle ground? But it's, it's again, it's a system that's been built in that way. How about if you got a room full of extroverts and introverts, whose opinion's going to get weighed in when you have that planning meeting? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lack of equal input is a huge issue. Uh, yeah. And of course, the extroverts don't necessarily know better. Or the narcissists, right? We've all, we've all been in that meeting, too. Or the people who aren't paying attention. Or the people who didn't do the read-aheads. Uh, or the people who... Uh, you know, didn't have lunch that day and they're pretty grumpy. Like there are a thousand reasons why it can be mm -hmm. very, very hard to have a good, thoughtful, like what's the point of that meeting? The point of that meeting is to make sure that what everybody in that room knows, you extract all the best stuff and leave out all the stuff that doesn't need to be there and come up with the best possible plan based on what you have there, or at least the best possible plan for coming up with a plan, right? Here's another one. You might not even have all the people in the room who know something about the problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So at this stage, you might say to yourself, if I could have a guaranteed process for eliminating all of those problems, whenever I have a planning meeting, I would like to use that process, please. Yeah.
right? Part of so, the enemy. So, so yeah. what does that look? What does that look like? You know, we're talking about uh, how this applies in design thinking, but what what does that look like right now? Because a lot of our listeners right now, they're like, yeah, probably I just got out of a day's worth of meetings that are exactly what you're describing. Of I don't feel like anything got done, and uh, frankly, we just waste the time when we could have been maybe maybe focusing on the actual problem. So how does this directly apply to them? How does this? What is this process, or what are what are maybe some of those components you're talking about? Um, how do people get involved with that? where they may be listening and saying, wow, that, yeah, I, John, I hear you. I'm frustrated with it, but now what? So you might be saying to yourself, self, I really want to make sure that no one person can dominate the meeting simply by force of personality or volume. And you might say to yourself, self, I really want to make sure that everybody leaves that meeting feeling like they got to put everything they had of value on the table and it was heard and appropriately assessed by everybody else there. You may say, well, that kind of rules out relying on who's talking. Maybe there's a way, what if there were a way for everybody to talk simultaneously and we all took all of their ideas on board? That would be really noisy, but actually maybe, what if we just do it quietly? We don't talk, we write down our ideas in really clear, simple format. And we put them on discrete pieces of paper that are non-attributable. So we don't know who authored each piece after it's been offered the first time. Yeah, and then that'd be good because at the end, as we start to assess all these things, we might, we might not apply undue weight to the opinions the boss put up there, especially if the boss, oh, yeah, let's add this. Everybody agrees up front. They're just ideas at this stage. We're just going to get everything we can up there. We're not married to anything. And especially if the highest paid person in the room says, hey, I want everything everybody has in here. Don't give undue weight to my thing. I'm going to be going through the same process everybody else's. You all throw your little pieces of paper up there and you all use short, clear language or maybe pictures to express what you're getting at. All of a sudden, everybody can participate. Nobody's ideas get left behind and nobody's dominating the conversation. You get all the juice from the orange. Another of my favorite things about using sticky notes, which I'm assuming is what we just got to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Another of my favorite things about using sticky notes is it's one of those constraints. It's the size of a sticky note. It's one of those constraints yeah. that actually makes people more productive. It makes them more generative because when I have to put my idea down, you know, I'm like, I have ideas and they're full of language, right? But if I have to squeeze that down to three or four words, maybe even two words, and then I put it up there, that lets everybody see the meat of what I was going to do. And when they see that up there, it sparks ideas in their brains. And, and then we create this chain reaction of ideation, which is my, one of my favorite things that happens is it's just like one person puts, you know, starts off slow. One person puts one thing up and then you just see people just start firing like crazy, like one of those, one of those ping pong ball chain reaction machines. And suddenly it's like everybody's, uh, you know, shooting off ping pong balls. Yeah, it's, it's like breaking in pool. Right. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing happens unless somebody fires. But once that ball goes down range, crazy things can happen at the other end of the table. And if we're framing that as a problem, right, you might say to yourself, man, a lot of meetings, the signal to noise ratio is terrible. <laughs> People will talk for 10 minutes for 30 seconds worth of contribution or that one guy or that yeah. one gal at the end of the table will do that. And instead, you just say, look, you can say whatever you want as long as you offer one idea at a time on one piece of paper and you throw up as many as you can. Here's another problem, right? 
is the thing we usually do when we teach the basics is, um, you know, you have everybody get up, stretch their arms out as far as they can and as high as humanly possible, get all limber, and then bend over and put their hands to their feet. Stretch a little bit, gets the blood flowing, good for that, but you stand up and you ask everybody, is there anybody here who can do those two things at the same time? If so, by all means, like we'll find his second career. You're gonna amaze some people at Barnum and Bailey's, but probably not, right? It turns out it's physically impossible. And something similar is true when you're trying to be creative. When you're trying to come up with new ideas, that's gotta be a space where you don't think pragmatically, right? Moving around your understanding of what's possible and involves making it painless, penaltyless, to come up with something that's just not the right answer or maybe even not doable. Because like Daniel said, even something that ain't going to work, it might inspire other people to come up with things that will. And you might get a thousand good ideas from that one totally impossible thing. So you got to agree, hey, everybody, we're doing the Starman thing right now. Our hands are in the air. We're stretching out as far as we can. You should not be walking around telling people that they're doing a terrible job of touching their toes. We'll come to the toe touching portion, right? So what you've built mm -hmm. is a little social combat that says, in this moment, we're doing the Starman thing. We're going to be creative. Just get as many ideas as humanly possible. And if you do those two things, up the signal to noise ratio so that everybody's communicating clearly and succinctly and demand in the first step that everybody get everything up on the wall so that you can move forward secure in the knowledge that you're not departing on your journey without things you really needed. Yeah. Then later when you do the pragmatic stuff, you know you're doing it right. This is one of those, yeah, I, I, man, you're you're hitting all the stuff that I love about design thinking, the stuff that made me really fall in love with it when I first started practicing it, because I see it all the time now where I'm like, uh, all right, let's start having ideas. And somebody has an idea and somebody's like, that won't work because, and I get to say, no, right now, we're not, we're suspending judgment. We are breaking all of the rules of budget of of everything. Like, let's just unleash all of the possibilities that could solve this, you know, and not even worry about whether the last guy's idea was was feasible. And that's like, it's freeing. We can we can stop worrying about whether uh, the idea we're about to have is stupid. And what I like to tell people is, go ahead and have other people's ideas, have have ideas of idiots, like, because it doesn't, it doesn't matter, like we have ideas. And we're like, that's not an idea I would have, because that's stupid. And so I'm not going to share it. Therefore, I'm not like associated with it. There's another thing about sticky notes is it's not me. That's just an idea that came out of my brain and it doesn't have to be associated with me at all. So when we, when we're in the divergent phase, it's just freedom and we can just explore all of the solution space or all of the problem space. Which is, which brings up another really important point about these early stages of the process. So often when we walk into meetings, we don't know the other people in there. Right? We don't have any social currency with them. They don't have social currency with us. We heard a nasty thing about them at the water cooler the other day. You know, there are a million reasons to be very, very careful, especially in a, a culture that is a little skeptical of deviation from strict, quiet professionalism, rightly in most cases. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to be a little careful about offering things that aren't the right thing. And you need to build trust in order to have a conversation where that happens. And a really skilled design thinking facilitator is going to win for your group that attunement, that trust that, you know, folks outside in the world would say vulnerability, that empathy, um, that resonance. Uh, but for us, it, it's just a matter of feeling like you're on a team together. 
And if you just like plop down in a room with a bunch of strangers and try to come up with the best possible answer, taking into account all the most creative and improbable stuff, you're going to have a much harder time than if you plop down with a good group of friends. And a good design thinking session includes tools for making sure that the folks who are there, even if they were strangers when they showed up a half hour later, they're good to go. Uh, that that idea of psychological safety again, so powerful. And and one of the one of the most satisfying things I've ever gotten when I ran a session uh, was this feedback where I ran a really simple session for my flight a, a couple months ago, and it was just. Let's identify where, where everybody's head's at with the culture, with the problems, with frustrations, whatever. Let's just kind of create a, a safe space where we can express how we feel about how things are going, non-attributable, having nothing whatsoever to do with our rank, you know, do all of that, do all that preparatory stuff, set, create the psychological safety that people actually express what's on their mind, even things that they wouldn't say are top priorities. Right now we're talking about everything, right? And, and at the end of the session, we had identified all these categories of things that the leadership of the squadron could get after. Like, this is what your airmen are prioritizing right now. This is what is most important to them. And if you actually addressed, they would feel like you cared about their needs because that's, that was what we came to at the end. And the most satisfying feedback I got was, I have never got, been able to get airmen to open up to me like that. And, and this was, um, you know, a master sergeant, a senior master sergeant, uh, and our flight commander, they are desperately trying to get the voices of their airmen to to tell them what they should be focusing on. It is a problem that a lot of unit leadership has. They really care about their people. They really want to figure out what is the priority, but they're unable to extract the voices of their people because of the systems that we use. And just using 45 minutes of these little funny exercises with sticky notes I managed to draw out the actual feelings of people in front of the people who had been trying to get them to speak up. And that's a, just a super powerful thing that I think people don't understand about creating psychological safety as a, you know, as a facilitator using these methods. Yeah. 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 Hey guys, uh, we, if we can, we just need to cut away to break real quick because John has something awesome to share right there. When we come back real fast, we're going to be diving into exactly John's response to that, but also a couple of resources for you to be able to get your hands on to recommendations as you may be new to the design process. We want to make sure you are able to find your way through that and get connected to this new process. John, we'll be right back here in a second, right here on the disruptive AF podcast. Airmen Powered by Innovation runs an idea sharing and problem curation platform to help organizations run campaigns and solve challenges regarding their mission. Explore topics like the Vice Chief's Challenge Saving Airmen Time and COVID-19 Teleworking Best Practices to get involved. Create an account or learn more on us.af.ideascalegov.com. Hey, welcome back to Disruptive AF Podcast. I'm here with my good friend, 
Kinsley Trigger Jordan and my good friend John Margulik. And we're talking about design thinking and applications to specifically the military context. And before the break, uh, I went on a little rant about the power of psychological safety. And uh, John, can you just give us a, a couple of words uh, from your perspective on the importance of that and how we facilitate yeah, absolutely. it? Absolutely. Because I, I think like that phrase is really important. But I think that there's more going on there. And I think that, that it's stuff that we know in our world is really important to how we do business, right? Psychological safety is important. We, when we run design thinking sessions, if folks have to show up in uniform, we have folks de-blouse and, and just down to their skivvy shirts so that nobody's wearing rank. Uh, yeah. And it's in addition to a visual signifier that everybody's on the same level, it's also an, everybody signifying with a physical motion and, and with their uniform that they agree not to light anybody else up. Nobody's yeah. gonna take two in the chest because they offered the wrong opinion. This is a space where we get to do that stuff. So you gotta put that, the pedal down on psychological safety. You have to draw that cordon around the space. But also like we know everywhere else in what we do that trust, uh, coordination, um, morale, being gung-ho are really important to getting the mission done. And it's not different for, uh, for being creative or solving problems, especially in large groups. So it's not just about being safe. It's also about feeling really committed to the problem. It's about making sure your give a damn isn't busted, right? Um, and that you, you really understand why something matters to you or to other people. You're really committed to getting it done and you're, you're having fun doing it with other people. Um, there's a philosopher by the name of Emile Durkheim who describes collective effervescence, which is his study. Usually you see it used when people are at a, a, a sporting event, they're at a football game or whatever. And um, I've seen it described as coming together, simultaneously communicating the same thoughts and participating in the same actions. It doesn't mean doing the exact same things, but it does mean this gigantic organism, even in chaotic fashion across thousands of people feeling and cheering and wanting the same sets of things. And that's more than just safety. It requires safety. Safety is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And if you do run in a really good session, people are going to come out of the warmups and periodically you'll refresh them on this as they work hard and get exhausted and need to be reminded like this matters and you matter. And the things that you come up with here to Dan's point from before, like it matters and we can do something with it. Proudest moment of my career doing design thinking in the Marine Corps was a sticky note from one of the junior Marines. You know, E2, uh, maybe E1 or E3, we don't know who left it from one of our sessions. Um, you know, we'd ask them just sort of leave your feedback on sticky notes anonymously, right, at the front of the room. And I still have a photo of this. I got to print it out and put it on my wall. It said, actually felt like it was possible to make a difference in the Corps. If you care about your Marines, yeah. your sailors, your soldiers, your airmen, that's the ballgame. Yeah. Right. And, and a thing that manufactures that and doesn't get anything done is worth doing all on its own. But if manufacturing that makes it more likely that you will be able to get something done, then this is the place to be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that dual purpose uh, of design thing is something that I've seen as well in my in my practice, especially with young airmen, uh, especially when they're in that phase, uh, I've noticed between kind of in the midst of having their their motivation crushed, they're like, I can express myself uniquely. I can bring my unique talents to bear within my context. 
a lot of people get that kind of crushed in them at a, at a, you know, within a few years of joining. And, and we, we had the experience of we taking people through sessions and talking about problem solving within the environments that you're in, in the future of these people, like, uh, Oh, I was actually thinking that I was just going to get out because I can't live with this, you know, this feeling that I'm just a cog. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're making me feel like maybe if I, if I'm creating an environment where everybody gets to participate and everybody gets to bring their own unique, you know, whatever it is to bear on the problems around them, there's a lot more purpose in that than just, I'm a cog in this giant machine. And just to emphasize the point, I've had a bunch of people tell me too, you know, I was going to get out, but I realized that with this, it is worth staying in or specifically for this, I would stay in. Yeah. And I think it's for exactly the reason you're highlighting. Yeah. So let's pivot really quick to what, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, the core principles and why sticky notes, why, why it helps us diverge and converge separately and create psychological safety. Can we, let's just get to the meat of where, how would people get started? What are, what is something that we could direct people to if they're like, yes, I want, this is the goodness that I've been looking for in my life. Where can I go and get some more information on it? And I have an answer to this as well, but I want you, I want to give you a chance to. Absolutely. And with your permission, Daniel, I just want to emphasize one thing from the last point before we move on, which is that. It's not, it's not just about having better conversations, although it would be worth doing that alone, right? Design, we call it thinking, but it, it can also be design doing. Also yeah. involves, I would say, depending on how you want to bucket it, at least three other things. One of them is co-designing. That is, the people who know how to build solutions should be including in the process the people who have the problems, if you're sitting in a room trying to design something that somebody a thousand miles away is going to use for expeditionary advanced basing operations uh, on an island you've never visited uh, in ways you've never actually experienced, like maybe get them in the room and have them help you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And by the same token, you can't just do stuff alone. So there needs to be a process for how do I get support for this? How do I include people whose buy-in is necessary to getting time, trust, top cover, resources, access to other people? and, and, you know, we called our design thinking practice warfighter-centered design because you have to include that. You know, if you don't, then it's just setting people up for frustration and failure because they have a great idea and they do all the work and then they don't know how to express it in a way that's going to help senior leaders say, hey, that makes sense to me, right? And then on top of that, once you have a good idea, you have, uh, uh, you know, what you've proofed and and have every reason to believe is a good idea and you have enough buy-in to go out and test it, you need a process to learn and loop. Is it a good idea? Let me go out and see in the environment where these things are actually used, right? This isn't all sticky notes. Some of it's the blood, sweat, and tears of actually heading out and time after time iterating and saying, is it right now? Is it right now? Is it right now? It's not. Should we be switching the idea entirely? Should we be making it out of something else? Should we be offering this to a different community? That's hard work and it's not just something that you do in a and I would encourage those who run into folks uh, who think that design thinking is something foofy to have them come along when you're really trying to get something done, because there's nothing harder than innovation or agility or anything involving sticky notes properly done over time, right? It is a yeah. no kidding, make a difference business. With all that said, and just ensuring that we don't move on without everybody thinking that design thinking is something that happens in a room and everybody has good ideas and hugs each other yeah. and then goes home. 
Um, if you want to learn about it, you can absolutely go to the Centers for Adaptive Warfighting. Go to Naval X's webpage on the Secretary of the Navy's site. Um, you can email agility at navy.mil and ask to learn more about it. Um, we have sites in North Carolina, in Virginia Beach, in the National Capital Region, in San Diego. You can expect to see it in Okinawa and in Hawaii in short order. Um, it's Marines, it's sailors, and it's uh, open to anybody. And we've already had folks from both the Air Force and the Army say that they want to stand up their own version of this thing. It's not proprietary, right? Build it for the, the military. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be hard to find classes. It shouldn't be expensive. In fact, it's free. Uh, it shouldn't be hard to contract to get into them. You don't need to. You can sign up for these things wherever they are. If you can travel or if you can take the remote class, you're in. It shouldn't be hard to find somebody who speaks your language and can explain not only how this works in ways that make sense to you without you needing to translate, um, but also can give you examples of how it's made a difference in places like yours for people like you, for you. And so that when you go back and explain to your boss, like, hey, here's what I was doing last week. They don't say, that sounds like foofy garbage involving tiny pieces of paper. They instead say, oh, it made a difference for somebody. Good to go. I don't care how you got there, which is what they should say, right? So the Centers for Adaptive Warfighting are a great place to go, but there are a burgeoning set of other options within, across, and outside of the other services, one of which uh, is run by our own Daniel Halter. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I will say that when I found out about Centers for Adaptive Warfighting, my and and the classes that they were teaching i i talked so much trash at air force leadership about how the navy was beating the air force at innovation because this is like the heart of what i've been getting at for you know what we should be getting after with ground up innovation is empowering people at the lowest level with just these fundamental skills to scope their own problems because like you, you kind of have to face it you can't just have a lab that gets to own which problems get solved. You, you can't, that doesn't make any sense because a vast, and I say this as somebody who spent the last 14 years innovating within my own context, a vast majority of the problems are just too small, but that doesn't mean that they're not important. So empowering people to be able to take control and, and solve their own problems is just, there's so much goodness in that. And it's going to keep them in the military because they feel like they can continue to produce value. It's also going to make them better problem solvers when they get to that level where they're dealing with the bigger stuff. And we know that the, the military, the Air Force, all, all of us, the government has a horrible history of trying to solve problems in non-agile ways. So with, with that, what, what I'm trying to do with Project Agitare is take that goodness that we're getting from Centers for Adaptive Warfighting and bridge it over into what happens next. Because once you've got that, you know, that minimum effective dose of design thinking or human-centered design, I've received a couple of versions of this. And my experience was that I then tried to take it into my environment and it was hard. And what I needed most of all was a community of other people who, who were going through that same experience of figuring out now, how does this, how do I do buy-in? How do I do planning? And how do I, you know, can I get allies to help me facilitate? Can I get allies to help me do retrospectives and figure out what went wrong in that last session? That's how you're going to get those lasting facilitators who are going to, you know, then get more and more wins. And, and so what I wanted to do was build a community of people who had received this training or could train one another and then could kind of carry one another along over this initial chasm of difficulty 
because I, I see people just dropping off, especially when they receive commercial only training. When you receive the commercial version, you learn a lot about how to use applied design thinking to, you know, build a startup. And that's, that's great. And it's very applicable, but it's a different culture and people aren't there. There's a lot of stuff to facilitating mil military audiences. That's just different. So, uh, with Agitari, that's kind of what we're doing. And we're doing it within the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum Slack spaces. But also if you go to like agitari.org, um, A-G-I-T-A-R-E, then you can just sign up with the mailing list. And and we're also right now, we're training Air Force units and just an introduction to what even we're talking about. Kind of this conversation that we're having right now, what are the most important aspects of it, why it's applicable and how how you go about getting started. So that's my pitch for Project Agitari. John, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, it loops back to something you were highlighting earlier, Daniel, which I think is really important. It's something we talk about in all of our classes, design thinking, lean startup, agile scrum, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, right? And not only do these tools uh, offer the elements of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, which are the, the components themselves of commitment, of grit, of team cohesion, of people caring about the mission and about each other and about living happy, productive lives. Um, but in order to get something out of these tools being practiced at your unit, you need to renegotiate the social compact. Leadership needs to be able to say, I want you to use these. If you do something with them, we will make sure that something changes. But there's a trade happening there, right? Because it's not enough just to say, and it would be counterproductive just to say, hey, if you do creative work, we'll rubber stamp it and you're good to go. No, what, what leadership wants, this is our experience having talked with a bunch of folks in those positions because they're customers, right? And one of our first principles when doing design thinking is have the people who are gonna be using it in the room when you figure out what you're gonna do. So when we said, "How? what makes this work for you? And they said, I need to know that things that come out of this process have had some basic kind of due diligence applied to them. So if there's like a really good rigorous design thinking process and then maybe a like minimum risk testing process that we could put on top of that and somebody can communicate to me quickly and clearly and in a decision ready format that saves my time, which is my most precious resource as a commander, that they've done all that, that this is uh, sensibly designed, has been uh, designed around the people who have the problem. I know it's a problem. I know they've edited it. I know they have a low risk way to test it. Hey, then I'm good, right? Go test it. Like I'll tell first sergeant, I'll tell the master chief, whoever, like make some space for this thing. But if I can't tell from the outside, if it's a black box to me, um, and I don't know whether it's well constructed or the people who did it are to be trusted, like I just can't provide that kind of license. Hey, I got that, right? That makes sense to all of us. So providing autonomy, mastery, and purpose to your officers, to your enlisted, requires also providing them with a process to make good use of it. And if both of those things are true, then you can manufacture those things. Then you can test new stuff and then you can set your people free. Dude, John, it has been uh, informational to say the least about just wrapping our mind around what what does this mean? What does it look like for, for getting our units, our airmen, our people on board with a just different way of thinking. One of the things we like to do, because believe it or not, we've already blasted through today's episode. I, I cannot believe it. Every single time, I don't know how we run, we run through time so quickly, but one of the things we like to do is quick around the horn, just last minute thoughts of what we'd like to, you'd like to be able to leave our listeners um, as we kind of wrap up our discussion of design thinking and, and the applicability uh, to where we're at. So uh, let's start off with Dan. 
Um, Dan, let's start off with you. So one of the one of my favorite things that John brought up today was the idea of, the idea of collective effervescence from Emil Durkheim. Uh, it was Emil, right? Uh, yeah. So th this is one of the things that I think is so um, really draws people in when they have their first experience with a well facilitated design thinking exercise is this sense that we're all contributing equally. And at the end of one of these sessions where you've got everybody kind of just churning through ideas, being really divergent and generative in the divergent phases, and really like collectively honing in on the most important pieces in the convergent stages, one of the, one of the things that you end up with, even if it was a product that could have been created by an individual, because sometimes it, it is like, you know, smart people can come to brilliant ideas on their own. But one thing that I've seen come out of when you use these processes is that when everybody builds it together, they all understand why it's there. And this is why I always say, don't build your mission and vision statements at your unit. Don't just pass it off to some staffer and be like, build us one that's inspiring. Build it as a team and you get so much more goodness out of that because that process of building it together does things for your people, for their morale, for their buy-in. And that is enormously powerful. Um, so that's one of the things that really stood out to me is this idea, the collective effervescence, the, you know, the moving in time togetherness of design thinking is one of my favorite things about it is that it is a social and generative and inclusive experience. And we don't have enough of those in the military context. So that's one thing, one really good piece uh, that we can get out of it. And, and I think, sorry, I'm going a little long here, but I think that the Air Force specifically, we've seen with the r recent uh, spate of suicides and, you know, and the difficulties that we're having reaching our people and resiliency, I, I firmly believe that adopting more of this stuff where people feel involved and, and included and feel like they can express themselves, not like only as part of a structured system, not as a cog whose only purpose is to produce a thing, you know, to produce a widget. Um, I think that that kind of stuff is what's going to move us closer to a, to a healthier culture. Um, and that's, that's some of the, that my aspirations for bringing uh, these, these practices to the military. John, you're up. Man, I just want to do another two or three hours. Y'all have to stop doing this. <laughs> um, I will say we have seen sexual assaults reported during one of our sessions um, that hadn't previously been. And I think the, the reasons, the directionality that Daniel's describing resonate perfectly with me. I think that's so, so important. I would also highlight that um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about diversity and inclusion. Um, and those are good goals, but we, we spend less time talking about the how, right? So it's one thing I, I sat through with the, the secretariat level uh, presentation um, by Franz Johansson, the author of the Medici effects uh, a while ago on diversity, right? Which is how many different uh, backgrounds, ideas, kinds of expertise uh, you have in the room and then inclusion, which is how well you make use of those things. Brilliant call to action, made perfect sense. If you think about diversity as who people are, the stuff they didn't have control over, that's one, um, you know, how they grew up, where their parents were, two, uh, what they do, 
Uh, what's their profession? What are they studied in? What kinds of expertise do they had? Three, how do they do it? Are they nighttime or daytime people? Are they extroverts or introverts? And then four, what communities do they bring to bear? You know, what, what uh, language did they grow up in? You know, what's their aesthetic or their ethic? Um, who, do they, who can they call when they have a question? Um, you want as many different pools to draw from in each of those four in the room as you can have when you're in the stage of just collecting data about the world you're operating in, right? And then you want to include them somehow. But even assuming you can find people who have all of those things, how do you make sure they feel comfortable contributing? And most of the work on diversity and inclusion, for better or for worse, and I think mostly for worse, uh, punts on that question. It's a, it's a hard question. Um, but a good design thinking session is an outstanding answer to that question. Yeah. How do I make sure, uh, you know, at the end of that session, I remember vividly there was a senior executive service um, officer at the front of the room who raised his hand and said, hey, I get it. I, I should be looking for people who are diverse in all those ways and getting them involved. But our promotion system promotes people like me. They look like me. They talk like me. Like, where am I going to find those people? And if nothing else changed, like I wanted to run across the room and say to the guy, you have junior staffers. We may not promote them to flag rank, but you have junior staffers who represent all of those things. And if you're willing to let them in the room and give them permission to talk and contribute, like they won't know as much as you do about how the Navy runs, but they will know way more than you do about what it feels like to be on the receiving end of those policies. So all you need is a way, if only we had one, of making people comfortable talking to you, sharing what they have, thinking creatively and bouncing ideas back and forth with you. I get it. That's hard in most circumstances if you're a flag officer equivalent, but there are ways to do it. And it's what we've been talking about on this podcast. But we were talking before the call about how many people we run into who just never run into design thinking. I wish it weren't called, you know, in some circumstances, design thinking. It might yes. be better if you're just like, <laughs> have a meaningful conversation with your people in which you all talk about the things that matter most to you. And you can arrive at conclusions that don't feel awful to anybody. Yeah. And you find the way forward together. Figure out how to say that in two words, I think we'll be in business. But once people learn how to do this, it gets a lot easier to, and I've done this for two and three star commands. Like, hey, how's our culture? Oh, shoot. Uh, we're really afraid yeah. of change and you don't trust your leadership, myself included, to be comfortable with proposals of new things. Okay. Next 24 hours is going to be, how do we do something about that? I'm disappointed yeah. nobody talked with me about it before now, but evidently we now know how to do that. I understand that that's a problem. It's getting fixed. Cool. Yeah. Right. And same deal, all of those things we so desperately need to talk about. And there are good ways to do it. And this is one of them. And thank goodness there are folks like you, Trigger, and you, Daniel. And thank you, Jordan and AFWorks, for helping to spread this stuff to everywhere where it could possibly needed, be needed, which I would argue is any place there are human beings, but especially the human beings whose care we've been entrusted with. We owe them the best ways of listening. Yeah. Yeah, and that that leads right into my my I guess we're on the horn closing statement is that to me the greatest victory of what we've been talking about over these last two episodes, um, because I think there's a lot of people when you think about design thinking uh, and just innovation in general, they think of these kumbaya moments where everybody comes together and gives each other hugs and oh it's great and put your sticky note up there. But the reality is is that those are icebreakers for actually changing culture. And there's nothing more difficult than changing a culture that has been ingrained for years. And when I say years, I would say even going so back so far as as the conception of, of what the Air Force was, because even our own people who are willing to stick their neck out and say, listen, we need to have a separate service. We need to have a service that is looking on the looking at the power of dominating the air in every capacity. They were court martialed for crying out loud. Uh, 
I mean, these people, it was not a popular thing. The, the, the birth of the Air Force came, came from the idea of people being bold enough to step out and say, listen, we got an issue. We got to start thinking about it. And that's one of the things I'd love. I'd love for people to be able to take away from this is, is design thinking is not just an event. It's a culture change. It's a culture shift. And the real victory in being able to take this to our airmen and to our, our, the places of work and just the mindsets of which we develop and execute the mission is, is exactly that, is that it's an opportunity to truly change the culture in the way in which it's a place where people not only want to be, but they're excited to be. And that's why I go back to what, what I call my triggers passion principles. If you can take the print, if you can connect someone to their passion for a purpose, you create fulfillment in their life. And people who live a fulfilled life work harder they achieve great, they have greater achievements in shorter amount of time. They love what they do. They don't go to work because they're not working. They're just living and loving life. And that's, and that's one of the, I mean, we don't even have time to get into it, but that's one of the things I love that what design thinking does is it, it takes the lid off of that and gives people the opportunity to be able to do that for probably the first time ever in their life. So real quick before we depart out of here, man, John, Dan, it's been amazing. Once again, uh, real quick, we'll list the resources in the comment section below. If you're listening, if you're listening uh, anywhere, podcasts are available. If you're watching on YouTube itself, we'll make sure that those uh, resources are also down in the bottom. Hey, real quick, um, John, uh, Dan, any any books that you would recommend for people who are looking at design thinking, kind of the, the you know, the agile mindset or lean startup? Absolutely. I can reel off a thousand of them. Let me start with some of the big ones, right? So uh, you want to read Jean Lidka's work, L-I-E-D-T-K-A. She's a, a business professor at Darden. She actually, uh, I had the privilege of getting my first design thinking education in her certificate program over there. Design thinking for the greater good is just out. Some of my favorite people are lifted on there, are listed on there. Sauls, if you're out there, I'm looking forward to another canoe trip when uh when the uh, time makes itself available, but the the book itself, she's one of the world's leaders. The way she understands the whole process, start to finish, of design thinking, and makes it accessible and, and practicable by anybody. Yeah, critical reading for anybody who cares about this stuff. If you yeah. wanted to throw stuff like Team of Teams on there for a military flavor, yeah. if you're feeling kind of uh, hyper educated about it. Uh, if you want to read the Scrum uh, book or the Scrum Field book by the Sutherlands. Um, both of those are educational and wonderful in their own right. Drive by Daniel Pink will teach you about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, I could go on. Daniel, you want to add anything there? I mean, one of my favorite books to recommend for people just starting out is Where Good Ideas Come From. And that's because it was one of the first books that I read that, where I started to connect innovation as this thing that happened as the combination, the collision of different things, of different events. And that is kind of like the heart of what design thinking facilitates. It facilitates the, the connection. It facilitates serendipity is what it does, is it creates a, an environment in which ideas have an opportunity to collide into greater and more, you know, more plentiful ideas. Guys, it, it, truly, it has been a treat, 100%, guys. Thank you so much. All of our listeners out there, thanks so much for listening to Disruptive AF Podcast. It's your edge of innovation, keeping you up to date with what's happening, not only in the defense ecosystem of innovation, but also getting you plugged into the resources which help you think differently, bring new creative results, and getting you plugged into the network that is going to help you uh, not only launch in, in a higher level of thinking and execution, but also 
bring you to a place of fulfillment. John, thanks so much for being with us once again. Dan, thank you so much. We'll make sure we get the resources listed. You guys, it has been great. John, we look forward to having you back once again right here on the Disruptive AF Podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah.